So Brother Dolph asked if I would be willing to share my choices talk with you, and I agreed, but failed to consider that that time my comments were directed to an audience whose common denominator was making bad mistakes, bad choices. I didn't think that that would apply here. So for the next couple of minutes, I hope you will hear the words of this, this talk spoken to a person in a prison setting. So one of the questions we want to explore during this week is, who am I? And a partial answer to that question is that we are a physical body made up of different characteristics. For, you, for me, you can see that I am an old, short, fat, bald-headed white guy. I'll be 79 years old next month, and I'm on my last quarter tank of gas. And when that expires, I will be returned to the earth and become dust. But another aspect of our being is that every person has an eternal soul and spirit. Simply stated, the soul is an invisible, vast reservoir of beliefs, emotions, and responses to life in general. And our spirit is the lifeline to our creator. When we take an honest inventory of who we have become, we reflect an image of those many choices we have made during our lifetime. And there have been many times when I want to blame others for my circumstances, but the plain truth is, is that I am the captain of my own ship. And I realize that the freedom to make choices carries with it the responsibilities of being true to myself and others as well. A choice is, in fact, an act of making or selecting between various alternatives. Some are voluntary and others may be imposed on us by a higher power or perhaps a situation we are confronting. Making a choice is an expression of freedom, however negative or unwanted consequences may result. And if you make what turns out to be a bad choice, you are responsible for the outcome. The responsibilities and consequences of making choice increase as we grow older. I am sure that we can all agree that as a child, most of our choices were made for us by our parents or caregivers. For example, we were told what to eat, what to wear, when to go to bed, and when to get up. We also come to understand that some choices were imposed on us as young children may have been for the benefit of others. For example, my father worked shift work. He was a light sleeper. So when he came home from the midnight shift, my brother and I had to play and act where activities were quiet so Dad could get some rest. Our activities were restricted. We did not have freedom to choose what or where we played, as those decisions were imposed and enforced on us by our mother. As we grow older into adolescence or teen years, we begin experiencing new freedoms to make choices as an expression of our growing independence. The freedom to choose who we would hang out with, typically what to wear, and how to behave at home and at school. It is true that a large number of choices we made reflect what we learned by watching others. And during our younger years, the person who had the most influence on us likely were our classmates or those friends in our social groups. We may not have realized it at the time, but I believe the most important lesson that we should have learned was that choosing role models was an important decision which would help shape our lives. Even today, who we hang out with plays a significant role in who we are becoming. 
I recall from my high school years, my role models were different, mostly depending on the proximity of my parents. At home, my choices were heavily influenced by them and their Christian values. But while at school and out of their sight, I thought it was cool to push the envelope. Smoking cigarettes with some of the older guys at school was hip. Nothing too serious, mind you, or so I thought at that time. When we become adults, we have more control over the choices we make. If you were to take an inventory of your life, you likely will find that the choices you make today are strongly influenced by past experiences and beliefs. Sadly enough, during our impersonable years, we simply do not make many important choices based on long-term goals. So much of the time, we simply trudge along being led by others, many of whom do not have our best interest at heart. So how do our choices affect our lives? First, we go through life making choices that have a cumulative effect on who we are and who we are becoming. Second, how we treated life and made choices in the past will have a great effect on us throughout our future. Third, by not making a choice, we actually have made a choice. Fourth, we, what we learn today, coupled with our past experiences, can change the choices we make and help shape our future. I have made some choices in the past and have made some, which have made a significant difference in my life. When I graduated high school, I chose to enlist in the United States Air Force, mostly to express my independence from my parents and to get away from that small town I grew up in. What I did not realize at that time was that Uncle Sam would exercise more control over my life than my parents ever did, particularly during the time of basic training. After completion of my four-year commitment uh, in the armed services, I returned home but declined to take a job that my dad had lined up for me at the factory where he worked. I chose instead to accept a job offer from a local power company as a meter reader. After two years of jumping over fences and being chased by every dog in the greater Roanoke Valley, I chose to quit that job and go to college. After all, Uncle Sam was going to reimburse me for my college expenses under the provisions of the GI Bill. Four years later, I had earned my degree from Virginia Tech and was employed as a marketing trainee with the Norfolk Western. In addition to paying for my college experiences, the GI Bill also helped me buy my first house. I retired from my job as a senior marketing manager in the year 2000 and now enjoy the freedom of doing those things my wife and I enjoy. Gardening, playing golf, traveling, and spoiling our eight grandchildren. I have always felt that joining the military service was one of the best choices I ever made. If there is one lesson that I hope you take from this talk is that the decisions you make while being incarcerated will have a significant impact on your achieving the goals you have set for yourself. You are, in fact, the captain of your own ship. With that in mind, let's think for a minute about the number and types of choices you make in this facility. On the outside, it has been estimated that the street people make about 25 choices each day, 225, I'm sorry, 225 choices each day, while the incarcerated persons will make maybe 25 decisions a day. These may include where to, when to go to your house, when to shower, what to eat, and what to wear. 
your work assignment and when to make phone calls, to name a few. Now hear me on this. One of the most important choices you have to make each and every day before your feet ever hit the floor is the freedom to choose how you will do your time. That choice is made by you alone and reinforces on a daily basis what kind of person you want to be. There are, however, some pitfalls to be aware of. I am sure you will recognize some of these ways that fellow residents choose to spend their time. First, there is the loner, person who stays in his house and rarely mixes with others. He goes to work, canteen or chow, and back to the house. A loner is at risk. Others may perceive that they are weak or a little crazy. A loner may get flack as others try to take advantage of him. Secondly, then there is the gang member. We all have the need to belong to be accepted by others. In some institutions, the pressure to join is tremendous. This kind of person may be asked to do something that is worse than what got him locked up in the first place. Three, one may be a connection for others to run drugs or whatever. Sometimes he will, may hang out with others who have chosen that route to pick up the crumbs of power and canteen items that comes along with that for his reward. Fourth, then there is the hardhead, someone who keeps running into walls with other inmates or the staff. He never seems to learn how to get along. This is another rough road because everyone around you is on guard at all times. Fifth, how about the negative leader? This road is usually a no-win situation. The choices one made on the street got him here, and now he's doing the very same things again and again. Hard time for those actions is generally the result of making the same mistake over and over. Finally, there is the independent, someone who does their time their way. This could be you. You are open to change and ways to get by without hassle. You don't make any big statements that will cause you grief. When you do make a change in your life, however, be ready for other inmates to test you. They will chase you all over the yard to get you to break your word. This is the path that may have a lot of risk and a lot of reward. It is so easy to be a follower and very difficult to choose to make your own way. We have talked about the responsibilities and consequences of making choices, so the question is how should you respond when you have a choice to make? Is there a method you can use to help you consistently make good choices? And there are two basic processes to consider. First, a choice can be a response. Or second, a choice can be a reaction. Maybe up to now you've mostly reacted to events in your life based on past experiences. To take control of your life, however, you recognize that a change needs to take place. And the good news is that that change can occur by your deciding to move from thoughtless reacting to events and move to a reasoned response to those same events. You see, a reaction is emotional, reflex, but a response is a considered or reasoned action. It takes a lot of practice for one to make that important change, but you can do it. Consider this example. In the recent past, as I was driving home, as I crested over a small hill, I could see a large truck approaching the intersection just ahead of me on my right. 
not only was it a huge truck, it was dump truck loaded with big 600-pound bales of hay. He also was pulling a flatbed trailer that must have had another 20 large bales loaded on it in such a fashion that the bales were sticking out over both sides of the trailer. I'm certain that the driver of the rig saw me. I'm certain that he knew I had the right-of-way. And I am certain that he knew he had the momentum to ascend the next ridge in front of the both of us if he did not stop. I'm also certain that he knew that I would not dare challenge him just because I had the right-of-way. So he kept on going right through the intersection. This really ticked me off. So I immediately decided that I would pass him and then slow down so he would lose his momentum to get up the approaching hill. Do you realize how hard it is to pass a rig that's possibly 30 feet long with cargo hanging out over the sides of the trailer on a narrow country road? The trailer, as I tried to pass, the trailer served over against the side of my truck, almost knocking me in the ditch. By then, I realized that my original plan had absolutely no chance of succeeding. So I slowed down and pulled in behind him. And as he approached the top of the hill, he pulled onto private land, and I had absolutely no chance of redemption. When I got home and surveyed the damage, the right front fender was bent into a circular shape, and there were scratches down the side of the truck. I guess I showed him. It didn't take me long to realize that my hot-headed reaction was a huge mistake. When we take the opportunity to look at our lives in the rear-view mirror, do we see the big picture? How a number of choices we have made in the past have been a reaction to the conditions around us rather than to consider the need for a reasoned response, which can give us a new outlook on life. How may this approach affect the decisions you make today? The plain truth is that spontaneous reaction to choices rarely provide us with any good results. Making the decision to change from reacting to responding to events will result in different outcomes. In order to make significant changes, to make different, better choices, and to meet life with a response rather than a reaction, we need to think about ourselves, who we are, how we feel, who and what are our values, the choices we have made and where they have taken us. We need to think about the choices we will make in the future and the direction we wish our lives to go. We should welcome and cherish that freedom. It bears repeating, and has been said earlier, that we are the captain of our own ship. Okay, what I'd like to do is uh, I'll get into my mess- the message I have in mind. It's also titled Choices, and then at the end of service we'll, we'll take prayer requests and we'll pray. Okay? So if you have your Bibles, my opening text will be in um, Hebrews chapter 12. Okay? I want you to think about it this way. As church members, I think we're pretty sound in the beginning, and we're pretty sound in the end, but I want to talk to you about the middle. And I don't care if you think the beginning is your regeneration and the end is Jesus' resurrection, or maybe it's the Christian church, the beginning is Christ fulfilling the law and setting up a New Testament church and Christ coming back, 
or the beginning is where God in Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, started making his plans and Jesus coming back. I, I don't care what that is. I'm talking about the time you are here on earth and when you're walking and breathing. And Brother Osby said that these folks in prison made some bad decisions to get there. I'm still subject to making bad decisions right here today now. And I want to talk about those cases. So let me read my text. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews chapter 11 was just a whole list of people that exercised great faith. Okay, that's what he's talking about, these witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which doth so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That's today. That's the middle. The race is the middle. And it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Yes? Okay. Um, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher. To me, that's the beginning and the end. Yes? Jesus is the beginning of the end. We can't run that race unless we have those two cornerstones knowing where the beginning is and where the end is. And there's this race in the middle of it. But as we lose focus of the beginning and the end, we're going to get off course. Unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is set down on the right hand of of the throne of God. For a second witness, I would like to go to Philippians 3, 13 and 14, talking about the beginning and the end. Just by way of context, if you go up to verse 10 and verse 11, it's talking about his resurrection. It's talking about his sufferings. To me, those are two, those, those two cornerstones. Okay? Brethren, I count myself not to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before. The before is right now. I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So I'm running a race and I'm pressing. Now it's interesting, I've never run a marathon race. I run some 10Ks. And I think I shared with you once, I had a very good friend that wanted to run a marathon. And, 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 and he was training all summer long, and this was in downtown Detroit, and it was in October. And he said, Dolph, I'm really afraid because everybody tells me that runs a marathon at about mile 20, there's a wall. And that wall is just at a place where you just want to sit down and give up and say, this is silly. And he says, what I would love for you to do is hang out on the race. And at that 20 mile mark, you jump in and join me for the last six months, six miles. And I said, sure. So I did. And here he comes and he was just dog tired. And I jumped in at mile 20 and I was running with him. And I said, his name was Emmett. I said, come on, Emmett, you can do it. And he was giving me the biggest eat dirt looks you ever saw in your life. Afterwards, he apologized and thanked me. But during the moment, he wasn't my, I wasn't his best friend. And it was just getting through. And, and he got through that. And at about mile 21, he started gathering himself. And he was getting together. And, and, and he finished the race. Now, I got to admit, I didn't run the last six miles with him. Because when you get towards the end of a marathon, people are all lined up clapping. And I felt guilty because I didn't run it. So at about 25, 25, and I split off because I didn't want people clapping for me because I didn't do that. But he finished the race. And I found him later. And everything worked out. 
But my point is, is in a marathon, there's, diff- there's times when you run that race and there's times when you're going downhill and there's times when you're going uphill and there's times when the wind's in your face and there's times when the wind's in your back. There's times when you're feeling good. There's times when you get a cramp and you got to run through it. They are all little bitty decisions all the way just to keep on doing it. But the, what helps you get through that race is if you can keep your eye on the prize, on the finish line. And if you can do that and you don't look at your own circumstances, you'll be more successful. Well, those are all choices. And that's the kind of choices I would like to speak with you. I've got one more. This is, this is in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Now, in Hebrews 6, 1 through 6, Paul says something that's really interesting. He says, leaving behind the principles of the doctrine of Christ. In other words, he's not saying they don't matter anymore. He says, what happened was, is here was a group of people that were Jewish, and they got converted to Christianity, but they got to a point where they're saying, oh, I miss the good old days. You know, those great big feasts we had, they were fun. That great big temple they had, that's so much better than these old brick houses that we got right now. Big cathedral, you know, that, that kind of, stuff. oh, we miss those days. And they were thinking about going back. Got it? And this is what he says to them. He says, leave that alone for a little. Let's talk about your race right here now, okay? For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away. Notice he's talking about these people running the race, and at one time they were going downhill with the wind at their back. And their eye was on the prize, and all of a sudden it started going uphill a little bit, the wind started coming in their face, and they're kind of waffling about going back. He says, you were running that good race, and you were enjoying that. And he says, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify themselves, the Son of God afresh, and put him to open shame. In other words, in that race when things got going and got getting hard, they started looking back at the beginning. Christ finished a redemption, and they were going back trying to recreate and re-redeemed themselves. And they were looking to the forward. They were going back to the Old Testament. And he was basically telling them, he said, that is something that you can't gain back. Christ has finished that. So we waffle from time to time. And here's some people that, that did waffle. Okay. So this is for us. What I would like to do, now this is going to seem kind of different But I want to look at four people in the time we have left. And what I would like to show you is that when I make little bitty choices that are fairly insignificant, but they're still right and wrong, those are relatively easy choices. And once you've made an easy choice and you take a step forward and there's a little bit of harder choice, Making the right decision with the easy choice gives you momentum to overcome the next one, right? And then once you've conquered that one, you step forward a little bit, and there's a little bit harder one, but you got the momentum of two good choices to go forward. Okay, let me give you a silly example. Now, I'm so thankful. 
I've got Deborah, and she does all the grocery shopping, but there was a time where I did my own grocery shopping. There was a very important choice I had to make. James, you and I just talked about it. I was so much better off if I made the choice to eat a full meal before I went to the grocery store. No one's nodding yes, right? You go hungry, you're going to come home with junk food. Yes? But if you go, and you're going to stay on budget, you're going to healthy stuff, but, but, but you're going to grab that stuff. And you're thinking, that's a simple little choice, right? That's just a simple little choice. But do you understand the ramifications of that simple choice later on? Silly example, okay? So what happened was, is we're going to look at David, and just is, here, I actually wrote this. We recognize that small victories provide the momentum for larger victories. But at the same time, we realize that small failures provide the momentum for larger failures. So this dominoing works in a good way, but it also works in a bad way. Yes? So I've got four people, and some of them did it the good way, victories. Some of them did it the poor way in failures. Got it? And we're going to see that dominoing effect. And we're going to look at David when he committed the murder of Uriah. And if you would have asked him in verse 1 and you said, David, you're going to murder one of your loyal, mighty men. He would have probably said, you're crazy. But we're going to see a series of bad decisions escalate to a point where he actually kills his loyal soldier. Okay? So let's look at these. And again, I'm cherry-picking, so you need to go back and read the whole chapter, but please look at this. I'm going to start in verse 1, and it came to pass, this is 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when the kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rahab, but David tarried at Jerusalem. Okay, so here's David. He's the general of the army, basically. And he decides to stay home. You're thinking, that's not that big of a deal. Well, that's the first step. The pattern was for the kings to go with their armies and with their men and support them and encourage them and make sure they have supplies. But this time he decided to stay home. Little thing, right? Okay. Then we go forward to verse 2. And it came to pass in evening time that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And on the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was beautiful to look upon. He made a choice to stare. Yes? He could have turned his head. Could have sent word to the woman, stop bathing on the rooftop. But he stared. And he said, Anyway, it turned to desire, okay? So let's go to the next one. Verse 3. And David and sent inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, Eliam was also a mighty man. So there's a mighty man that's one of his mighty men that's a father. The guy has a daughter named Bathsheba. No, wait a second. That was his daughter-in-law. Has a son named Uriah. Yes? So this involves two mighty men. And you know what he decides to do? He decides to pursue a mighty man's wife. Okay, stayed home, stared, pursue a mighty man's wife. 
Right. Verse 4, And David sent messengers and took her, and she came unto him, and he lay with her. Well, and then he decided to be intimate with her. Do you understand how it's dominoing? Boom, 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 boom. See, when, I'm, when, when we're talking to um, maybe someone on the inside in a prison, they go, oh, I shouldn't have robbed that store. Well, maybe it starts back further, and it was the group of people you hung around with. And then they exposed you to drugs, and it was like, okay, I should have not have took that. And then the addiction came, and I needed the money, and then it was the decision to rob, to fill my thing. Do you understand how, boom, 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 you got to... In that great theologian, Barney Fife, nip it in the bud, okay? Yes? There's actually scripture for that, somebody there, okay? Nip it in the bud. Verse 8, David said to Uriah, go down to the house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed in the king's house and followed the mess of him a mess of meat. Okay, but basically what happened, word came back from Bathsheba that I'm pregnant. And then what he did is he made the decision to cover it up with deceit. But Uriah had too much integrity. And he says, no, my, my men are out there fighting. He says, I can't go and enjoy the comforts of a wife when my men are fighting. He says, I'm not going to do it. And David goes, oh, man. Okay? So then what he does, he tries to cover his tail with alcohol. He says, okay, come here, Uriah. And he gets him drunk. And he says, now go home. If, if you're going to be loyal to your men when you're sober, maybe I can lower your inhibitions, and then you'll go into your wife. And he still has too much integrity, and he says, no, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it with my men out there. And David says, all right, that's what it is. And then he sends a letter to Joab. And he says, I'll tell you what. You look at the battle. You find the hottest point in the battle. You find where the, 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 the enemy is the strongest. You send Uriah out there. And you let him go into that place. And then as soon as he gets there, you hightail it and run and leave him. And Joab does it. Now again, I go back to the very beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 11. If you told David in the beginning, you are through treachery are going to kill one of your mighty loyal, your mighty men, those were the loyal, those were macho men. You think Superman and Batman are cool? These mighty men were better than that, okay? And he would say, no way. But you see how the series of events? And this isn't a lifetime. This isn't a pretty short span. You got it? Okay. All right, that was the first guy I wanted to look at. This is one that didn't turn out so well. Let's go to one that turns out a little bit better. Okay? So look what he did. He tarried. He stared. He pursued. He laid with her. He covered it up with um, deceit. He covered it up with alcohol. And then finally he had the murderous plan. All right. Let's go to Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Okay? Nehemiah started out pretty little. But then he came to a place where he rebuilt a whole city. But notice the steps that it takes. Okay, so I'm in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard, this is Nehemiah speaking, and he heard about the destructive destruction of uh, Jerusalem. He sat down and wept, and he mourned certain days, and he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So we're looking at Nehemiah, and he's looking at a broken down city, and you know what the first thing he does is he fasts and pray. That's cons- you're talking, about a city. you're talking about a wall that goes miles around a city. And you're looking at that thing and you go, oh, I've got to do this. Where are you going to start? On my knees. It's a pretty simple thing. That's where they started, on their knees fasting. Okay? 
Number two. I'm going to verse six now. And the next thing he did, he says, let thine ear, he's, he's praying to God, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants. Confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. That's kind of what we heard yesterday, or last Sunday, right? Where does everything start with? It starts with repentance, with your relationship with God. So the first thing he does is he prays and he fasts, and the next thing is he confesses his sins. All right. I don't see a single brick up yet, but notice these little things that get going. Confession of sin. Okay? And then what happens, he does something that's pretty amazing. What happens is, he actually told Artaxerxes. Now, you got to remember, Nehemiah at the time is a servant. His title was cupbearer. In other words, when he was eating a meal, and he goes, slave, bring me my cup. I want a drink of wine. There's Nehemiah coming running up. I mean, he was a nobody servant. Captured Israelite, drug off to Persia. And he says, the king looks at him, and he says, why are you sad? I mean, this king was like a god to the people. He had ultimate authority. He coming to him sad, he says, don't be sad around me. Kill him. I mean, that's the kind of authority he had. And he comes up to Nehemiah, and he's sad, and King Artaxerxes says, you're sad, and he was scared. He said, oh, no, I'm not supposed to come with a bad countenance. So what happens is, is the king says, what's wrong? And he said, he risked his life, and he told King Artaxerxes, my homelands, he could have very said, I don't care about your homeland. We captured you. We conquered you. Just this lowly servant. He, had the, he risked his life making this request of a king. That's kind of a big thing, right? Yes? Okay. Still not a single stone built to build the wall, though, right? 223, I'm sorry, 213. The last one was 25. I went out by night and by the gate of the valley and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. The first thing he did is he went and he assessed the situation. He did it very discreetly. He went around looking around and he made that assessment. He said he had secondhand counts, but he needed a firsthand. He needed to see with his own eyes, right? So he got the facts. Next thing he did is he gathered all the elders, 217, and I said unto them, ye see the distress that ye, we are now in, how Jerusalem lies waste. The gates there are burned with fire. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem. And he said, by the way, I got permission from Artaxerxes. And by the way, he gave me supplies. And by the way, we're ready to go. But this is an important one. In 219, there were three guys, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, and you know what they did? They just mocked him. You're going to build that wall. And you know what he chose to do? He chose to ignore, ignore the naysayers. Y'all, sometimes that's really important. Just ignore the naysayers. Can I amen from the other teacher? Yeah, yeah. Okay? So what happened was they decided to ignore. And then finally the saints 
chose to work. Matter of fact, the Bible says the saints had a mind to work. That's so cool. So what happened was, is they took the city, they divided it up, and they put them in sections, and they said, okay, the the Joneses, you have this section of the wall, and the Smiths, you have this section of the wall, and the Greens, you have this section of the wall. And family by family, they built the whole thing. And you know what Nehemiah did? He chose to circle the city. He just walked around. He let each family do each section all by themselves. He walked around, and he did nothing but shout encouragements. Come on, you can do it. And when, 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 when uh, stumbling blocks came, he, he helped overcome. When something was needed, he helped overcome that, and he just helped and was the cheerleader. So with that being said, we saw a bad example of little things leading to great things in terms of failure. And then we see a good example of little things leading to great things. A good example, okay? So let's go to number three, Asa. Asa's an interesting case. The reason why I used Asa, he does little things to go big, but then he starts doing little things to go down the hill. Got it? Asa is a child of God. For 36 years, he was a great king. He was a spiritual king. He set up things. He honored God. He obeyed God. He had the people obeying God. But that last four-year downslide, he started fading away. And you know what? It started with little things. And they got bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay? So I'm in Second Chronicles 15, verse 2. And he went out to meet Asa, this is the prophet of God, and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah, Benjamin, the Lord is with you while ye be with him. If you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. In other words, we talked about that. God retreating from people that ignore and sin willfully. And basically what happened here is this is really, really important because at the end of Asa's life, we're going to see a complete different man. A man of God comes up to him and gives him God's counsel and he heeds, he listens to him and he obeys him. At the end of his life, a man of God's going to come up to him and you know what he's going to do? He's going to throw him in jail. He's going to get mad at him. How does that happen? Little by little by little. If you told him right here in chapter 15, verse 2, he says, Asa, one day you're going to just throw all God's prophets in prison, he'll say, no way, I'm going to honor him. 15.8. When Asa heard his words, he took courage and he put away the abominable idols. So he's listening to the man of God and he's looking around and he sees the groves over here and he sees the idols over here and he sees the sacrifices over here and all these things and he says, get them all out. Pulled up the dump truck and just tossed them all in there and they hauled them all away. Okay? 15, 9 through 15. I'm going to summarize this, but basically what it was is he assembled the people, they worshiped, they made sacrifices, and they entered a covenant with God. This is great. This one makes me laugh, though, the next one. In 15, 16, you know what he did? Next, he demoted mom. The queen, his mom. She was a pagan worshiper. She had a pagan temple. She had a pagan grove. And the next thing was he demoted mom. Wow. And also concerning Mekah, the mother of Asa the king, he removed her from being queen 
because she had made an idol in the grove, and Asa cut down her idol and stamped it and burnt it in, in the brook Kidron. Way to go, son. Yes? No, he's honoring the Lord. He's, he's doing great things. He's doing very courageous things. He's doing very powerful things, all in the name of the Lord. Watch. One little thing that it starts. Verse 5, chapter 15, verse, but... The high places were not taken away out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was perfect all his days. Well, we're going to find the last three years, we're going to see that come a little different story. Do you understand? But notice what happened. There was a little thing he overlooked. Yeah, my poor wife, she hears this sermon three times during the week. Yesterday, we're on the front porch looking over our, our, our grass and she says, give me an everyday example of a little thing. The only thing I can think of is, maybe it's TV. Maybe the little thing in our life right now, maybe we watched a show we shouldn't. It's just a little thing. It's not going to hurt us. It's kind of fun. You know, that kind of, maybe that's the little thing. When that little thing just wears you and calluses you and becomes less sensitive to whatever it is, sexuality, cussing, you know, whatever it is, it just, it just wears you down. That's an exa- just a little thing, okay? One little image burned in your brain. 16.3. And then we go a whole chapter further and he's in a place where there's some bad guys coming and what he does is he makes a league between me and thee, that's Syria, as there was between my father and thy father. Behold, I have since thee silver and gold. Go break the league with Basha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. So in other words, you know, here he is, Asa and Judah, and here's Syria, they're in a contract with Israel, the top ten nations, and he says, I'm going to give you money, you be in a league with us, not them. And God didn't like that. You know why he didn't like that? Because for 36 years, he says, you were in a league with me, and I took care of you. I gave you every victory. And now you're doubting me, and you're going to go and hire the mercenaries, some, some, some Syrians, to take care of what you need? And then you're going to get your brothers Israel? Okay. Chapter 16, verse 10. A prophet of the Lord came to him and says, Asa, you messed up. Verse 10 says, Asa was wroth with the seer and put him into a prison house. And then let's go to verse the second half of verse 10 and it says, and Asa oppressed some of the people the same time. So he went from a king in verse 1 of chapter 15 where the God came to him and he says, come, let me hear what you have to say. And when he did it, he was convicted and he obeyed everything to a place where he was right the opposite. What the prophet said, even though it was the word of God, angered him, threw him in jail and started persecuting Christians. Well, they weren't Christians. We didn't have Christians all the time, but you know what I mean, right? Faithful. Okay. How are we doing? That was number three. Um, Moses is a good one, but I think I'll save that. Maybe we'll pick this up next week. I don't know. But let me skip forward, okay? I'm going to skip Moses. You've got that if you want to read that. I want to bring to remembrance a couple messages you've heard in the recent past. When I say recent past, is sometime in the last, oh, I'm guessing about a year, year and a half ago. I did a message on the Beatitudes. And, and, and here's all the Beatitudes right there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those that make. Blessed are the hunger and thirst after righteousness. You, you remember that list? And you remember the advice I gave you? I said, these are escalating in difficulty, right? Because I look at that list and I look at the very last one and it says, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness. I go, wait a second, that takes a whole lot of faith to do that one. 
Yes? But let's go back up a little bit more. And let's go to uh, number seven. Blessed are the merciful. I got a tough time of saying I'm sorry. I got a tough time of forgiving other people. And what I shared with you, if you have that, just don't keep pounding and beating your head against the wall trying to be merciful, merciful. No, it's like that little kid's race where you put a potato on the spoon and you run across the yard. And when you're running across the yard and the potato falls out, what you do is you don't take the potato, put it on the spoon and keep on running. You take the potato, go back to the starting line and you start over and you run all over again. Well, that's what you do with the Beatitudes. If you're having trouble being merciful, what you do is don't stop and be banging on your wall trying to be merciful. You go back to the starting line and you go back to be pouring spirit. You start with humility. And then you start with mourning. Guess what that is? Repenting. There we go back to the original repenting again. And then you go back. Maybe the successes of these, and I don't believe me, I don't want to make mourning a little thing but it's a littler thing than persecuting after righteousness, okay? Or persecuting because of righteousness. Yes? Okay, so, so, so here is a principle that we've preached before where, where major victories are generally preceded by quote-unquote lesser victories, okay? Okay? In other words, walk before you crawl. That's a principle that we know. And you're thinking that's not scripture, but go to 1 Peter 2, 2, John 16, 12, Hebrews 5, 12, and those are the same principles in that, okay? Let's go to the other one. Failures is the same way. And I go back all the way to the garden. Notice what Satan did. The first thing he did, he just didn't say, you're going to become a god. The first thing he did was he questioned the word of God. Yea, hath God said, it's a little simple thing, right? And the next thing he did, he says, then he added to the word of God. And then he denied the word of God. This is in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. He said, yea, hath God said. Then he said, ye shall neither uh, eat it or touch it. Touch it was not God's commandment. That's an addition. And he said, for ye shall not surely die. Inserted that one little three little word, not. Changed the whole meaning. He said, no, God's wrong. And then when he said, he says, you shall be as gods. Notice how he took a running start at that. If he started off with Eve and says, you're going to be a god, I don't think he'd have got her. But he started by questioning the word of God, adding to the word of God, denying the word of God, and then all of a sudden that being the God thing was a little more palatable to her. Well, that's like what it was us. And I'll go back to that famous theologian, nip it in the bud. And if you don't like Barney Fife, I got three scriptures for you. James 1.15, 1 Corinthians 15.33, and Job 31.3. Those all are verses that have those principles of nip it in the bud. Get it early. So let me close with one passage. One passage. Gaius is another guy I would like to talk about, but we don't have time for him. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Okay? We know the beginning... We know the end, but what about the middle? The middle is a bunch of choices we make in our life. And little ones help us to big victories, and little failures give us the momentum for big failures. We go back to the basics. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? It's a personal relationship with the Lord. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, I'm sorry, adulterers, 
adulterers, effeminate abusers of themselves of mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, not extortioners, shall enter the kingdom of God. When you're doing those behaviors, it's tough to have a relationship with the Lord. And such were some of you. Just in case you get a big head and think you're holier than nobody else, he's saying, listen, that's where you started off. So don't get too self-righteous. Don't get so holy roller on me. He says, we all had that standing point, right? So I pray, we'll go back to Brother Osby's comment. Sometimes we go into automatic pilot and a reaction really isn't a choice, is it? Yes? It's just something you do by habit. Maybe we need to take a step back and think, is that really the best thing? 